It is a joy to be here with you this morning as we look at what the Word of God has to say. If you will, please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. That is where we will be this morning, Philippians chapter 1. When I got the call last night, three hours before my bedtime, that I was be preaching this morning, I realized that I would have no bedtime. <laughs> bedtime goes away time. But uh, just make sure you keep Pastor Fairchild, especially Nicole and the kids in prayer, that God would give her the quick and speedy recovery and bring them back to us safely. This morning, I want us to look at marks of a true church What makes up a true church? In Midland alone, there are some around 80 churches. Practically every corner you turn, a church can be found. Some big, some mid-sized, and some small. And I went and looked at several websites for churches here in Midland and Odessa, specifically at their What We Believe page. You can tell a lot about a church, and most likely how they function based on what their What We Believe page says. Unfortunately, many lacked clarity or ambiguous in their talk or altogether false or simply wrong doctrinally. And some didn't even attempt to use Scripture to back up what they believe. But by their doctrinal statements, or whatever else you find on their website, you can tell what marks that church, what makes them who they are. When what marks a church is how cool or how relevant to the culture they can be, or how many programs they have but yet lack the clarity of the gospel and essential doctrines, or have no doctrinal statement at all, you then have some very big issues. When there is a lack of clarity on what should be the marks of a true church, it gives way to all kinds of man-made filth that consequently infiltrates the church. So today I want to look at what marks a true church through the perspective, through the eyes of the Philippian church. This list is not exhaustive, excuse me, but it will give us some frame of reference and hopefully encourage you this morning. If there is any church that did not lack clarity that was a true church, it is the Philippian church. So if you will... Read along with me in your Bible, starting in verse 21 of Philippians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul writes, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents, 
which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Once again, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask again, Lord, that your spirit would be with us now. Father, that you would teach us as only you can. That you would convict us where we need to be convicted. That you would sanctify us, Lord, by the power of your word. That Christ would be seen today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Last time I taught, I I taught on solely verse 21, for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And we looked at aspects as to what it means to, to live as Christ. To Paul, Christ was everything. Christ is the object of his faith. Christ is the reason that Paul does what he does. And then we see in verse 22, if you'll look with me, Paul says, But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. When Paul says, but if I am to live on in the flesh, he is not talking about his sinful state. He is not talking about the remaining flesh. What he is talking about is literally his physical state of being alive as you and I are here and right now, alive and breathing. As he lives and breathes, Paul knows that there will be fruitful labor as long as he is alive. What does he mean by that? What does Paul mean when he says fruitful labor? What was Paul's aim? Paul was a soul winner for Christ. Yes, He led many churches and undoubtedly led many to Christ. He instructed many churches. Paul's reason, his reason for existing was to preach Christ. Paul's aim, Paul's purpose was to preach Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In fact, turn there in your Bible real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just a few books over. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, he writes, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and wisdom of God. Paul's aim, his purpose was to preach Christ and him crucified. If you go back just a couple verses to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross would not be made void. That's it. That's the mission. That was Paul's purpose. This is the labor. Fruitful labor. Yes, that's what he states. I've seen churches that labor. I've even been in churches that labor after many things. Things other than the solid expositional preaching of God's word. And it always falls so incredibly short. 
Paul's aim is not to tickle ears, create relevant programs, or or incorporate colored light shows, or to put up smoke machines in the temple to create the right atmosphere. His aim and his purpose is to preach the word, to preach the gospel. How did Paul reach the world? He preached Christ. Paul didn't reach the world by becoming like the rest of the world. Paul preaches Christ. Paul preaches the word of God. And as a church, we do not, we will not, and we cannot reach the world by becoming like the rest of the world. It's crucial that we understand that. If we're going to progress in the joy and the faith, as Paul writes in Philippians 1, we must be obedient to the word of God. We reach the world by being obedient and holding steadfast to the word of God. Yes, that is the charge given in Scripture, is it not? That is the mandate given to Timothy by Paul in 2 Timothy 4. Timothy is a young pastor struggling a little bit in his ministry, and Paul writes to him saying in 2 Timothy 4.1, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That is what we are to do. We are to reach the world with the gospel. Many turn away to have their ears tickled, to hear what they want to hear, to not hear what they don't want to hear. They accumulate false teachers to fulfill their sinful desires. That is not what we do. We are to be sober in all things. We are to endure hardship. The world, brothers and sisters, does not love the truth. They hate the truth. That's why they accumulate for themselves false teachers. Yes, the world says truth can be whatever you want. That you can live and do whatever you want. As long as you don't tell me what I can and can't do, then we're good. Right? We are living in a time where solid truth is hated. This is not new. We understand this. This is not revelatory. Men have always hated the truth. Because anything that is true exposes anything that is false and wrong. Yes? Anything that is true brings light to what is false. Jesus, when talking to Nicodemus in John 3.19, when speaking to Nicodemus, says this. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone... Who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Growing up, I was a heavy sleeper. I slept through my alarms and sometimes, you know, even pushing me, you know, wouldn't wake me up. However, one thing that always worked no matter what is when my mom would come in and flick on the lights. Yes, Any of y'all know what I'm talking about? 
you youth, when your mom wakes you up for school, says get up, and then you sleep for 15 more minutes and you hear her walking down the hall, you jump up real quick, right, to get ready. When mom flicks on that light, right, that always woke me up. Or like when you're driving down the highway and everybody's switching to those super bright LED bulbs, hate those things, make me angry. <laughs> right? But it, it was like, oh my gosh, it's blinding, right? I hated it. Mom, turn off the lights because it exposed me, right? I hated the light. That's how sinners react to the truth because it sheds light. It exposes you. That's what the truth does. My mom didn't have to say anything, but the lights were so bright that it just startled me and I hated it because there was no escaping the penetrating light. That's what the word of God is. It cuts, it slices, it penetrates, and it exposes everything it touches. And mankind hates it because it exposes them for what they are, sinners. The truth of God's word exposes them and their sin that they love so much. And therefore, they do everything they can to shun the light. We are living in a time where truth is hated more than ever. Sadly... Even in churches where the word of God should be top priority is nothing but watered down to nothing or altogether replaced with programs or emotionalistic music in the right atmospheres, different ideologies and philosophies and myths, and the pulpits are filled with nothing more than ear ticklers and people pleasers. And people wonder why they're not satisfied with their lives going to these churches People wonder why so many professed Christians are content with doing church in their pajamas from home, which is not really church at all, or are so easily ready to give up going to, to church and are content with not going back to church, or why so many churches fall into sinful, unbiblical ideologies or, or wokeness. It is because these churches have not been obedient to the laborious mandate to preach the word of God. And so because they not have been obedient, they're paying for it. And the consequences are dire. We don't seek to be culturally relevant and mix in with the church worldly stuff, thinking somehow we can reach the world by becoming like the world. It never works. You may be able to pull a crowd But when they do not have the unvarnished, unadulterated word of God preached to them, they have nothing. If the word of God being preached is not the sole goal and practice of the church, then the church will crumble and you will end up with no true church. We preach Christ. We preach the gospel, the full gospel, the full truth. Again, Paul in Colossians 1, 28 through 29 says, We proclaim him, that is Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also, Paul says, I labor. There we see that word again, labor. Striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. According to Christ's power within me, Paul says, this is the reason I work hard. 
This is the reason I strive, I reprimand, and teach every man. This is the reason I work exhaustingly. This is the reason I'm willing to be put in jail so that I can proclaim Christ and preach Him. So that I may present every believer complete in Christ. That is to say, to be spiritually mature in Christ. This is the labor Paul is talking about in Philippians. But it is fruitful labor. Number one, the fruit is that believers are growing in their faith and becoming complete in Christ, as we just saw in Colossians 1. Ephesians 4.12, Paul speaks of that, right? He labors and strives and preaches and teaches the gospel for the building up of the church. Number two, the fruit is to bring souls to Christ, that lost souls would be saved. So not only is his labor fruitful in that believers are maturing and growing and bearing fruit themselves, but also that souls are being saved, coming to Christ. Again, this only happens by the preaching of God's word, not by coming relevant, not by coming worldly. It is the gospel that saves lives. Romans 10, starting in verse 14, or excuse me, yes, verse 14 through verse 17, Paul says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. Verse 16, however, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. People are saved when the word of God is preached. The preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel is the means by which God, through the Holy Spirit, convicts a sinner and regenerates them, bringing them to himself. Only when the gospel is preached can someone be saved. That is the only way. And there is no substitute for it. It is not our responsibility to get people saved. We don't do the saving. That's God's. Salvation is the Lord's. Paul knew this. Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Not man's efforts. Not all these weird, charismatic, mystical, hyper-emotional, manipulistic methods of trying to win people to Christ. That does nothing for the kingdom. It just damns souls to hell. It creates spiritual counterfeits. False conversions. You want to see an impact for a kingdom? You want to see a true church that has real, lasting fruit? Show me a church where the word of God is preached unapologetically. Where the full gospel is preached. Then you may say, okay, well, well then how do, we, how, 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 do we get, how do we get people in, how do we get people in church if we, don't, if we don't have the cool programs? If we don't have the coffee shop or a rock band? It's quite simple. You fulfill your duty to the Great Commission. You are an ambassador for Christ if you are in Christ today. You share the gospel. You invite people to church. 
You pray for them. When is the last time you've prayed for the lost? When is the last time you've shared the gospel or invited somebody to church, pled with them to accept the gospel? If they don't come, if they don't want it, then that's ultimately between them and God. So then you may say, well, then how do we build the church? You want to know? You want to know how we build the church? We don't. Christ built the church. Christ builds the church. He and he alone builds the church. Christ is the head of the church. We are just called to be obedient and to spread the gospel and to preach the word. Matthew 6, 18. Jesus talking to Peter says, I also say to you that you, Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. We don't build the church. Christ does. What's going to stop Christ and his word? Will hell? No. Will mankind? Nope. We hold fast to the word of God. His word is sufficient for everything. We don't need anything else. Paul, again, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, he tells us what the word of God is. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The word of God is sufficient for everything. Everything. Or Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the word of God. Or John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays to the Father in verse 17, saying, Father, sanctify them, that is us, believers in Christ. He says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Believers are sanctified by the word. And we are made more and more like Christ through the word. Or even Psalm 19, if you will, turn in your Bible to Psalm 19. I love this song. Starting in verse 7 of the 19th Psalm. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the the eyes, verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of my hidden faults. Also keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I will be acquitted of great transgression. Let the, words of mouth, let the words of my mouth, excuse me, and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The psalmist here is talking about the word of God. It is pure. It is altogether perfect. It is lovely. It is clear. That is to say, 
It's not ambiguous. What it says is what it says. What it means is what it means. So when we accept it as believers in Christ, we know exactly what we're accepting. When someone rejects it, they know exactly what they're rejecting. It restores the soul. Brings us to Christ. Shows us who God is. This is the word of God. It is sweeter. It is better than anything. It is perfect. Sufficient for everything. And showing lost souls their need for Christ. Bringing them to Christ. As well as sanctifying believers. And hear me folks. If if you have trusted in Christ. If you have trusted in him and him alone. For your eternal security. There is no way we could ever sink so low. To think that God's word is not enough. And that somehow we have to do something different. From what God has commanded us to do. In order to reach the world. That is bogus. We are to preach the word. To preach Christ and him crucified. It is our job to be obedient. And Christ does all the building. This is the fruitful labor. For which Paul loved to see. If I am going to continue living, Paul says in verse 22, this is the fruitful labor I'm going to see. This was Paul's joy. To see them being obedient to the word. The word was lived out through the lives of the believers in the Philippian church. If you want to skip over just a chapter to Philippians 2 verse 12, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That is what the true church has always done and always will do, which is obey the word of God. When the Philippian church didn't have Paul, when he was gone... On vacation, a.k.a. prison, right? They didn't freak out and go, oh goodness, what will we do? What do we do now? What will we ever do? They stayed the course. They obeyed. That's what he says. Not only in my absence, but also in my presence. They hung on to the word and were obedient. That's what the church does. If Brian ever leaves, we stay the course, which, hear me. That's not an announcement that this is coming anytime soon. Don't mistake me. Don't say Corey said you were leaving. Right? But we stick to the word. We stick to the word of God. Look at verse 23 with me. Paul says, But I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. Verse 24, Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Verse 23, Paul says, or he knows, excuse me, that it is far better to depart and be with the Lord. For the true believer in Christ, he is everything. As I said at the beginning of this message, he is the object of our faith, the one whom we 
long to know fully, the one in whom we long to please, the treasure of our hearts, so unfathomably great, so precious, our friend. Paul said, it is, Paul said, it is far better to depart this world and be with Christ. Why? Because then we have Christ fully. Though we know him now, we do not see him, right? And we long to be with Christ. That is where Paul is at. And he is struggling, wrestling in his heart, which thing to do? Do I go and be with Christ or do I stay? Incredible. Do I die and be with Christ or do I stay on this earth? Now tell me, when was the last time you met someone that was so enraptured with Christ that they would much rather die so that they could go and be with him? May it be the testimony of all our lives for all of us who know Christ. But although it is much better for Paul to depart and be with Christ, he says, I will stay. I will stay on this earth. He says, it is much more necessary for me to stay for the sake of the Philippian church. So why is Paul staying? Paul is staying for the church's progress and a joy in the faith. Progress and joy. That was Paul's ministry. He is in prison. He has been beat. But he's there for the progress and joy. In fact, he's writing this letter from prison. But he has joy. Incredible. Under such harsh circumstances, under such suffering, he has joy. I don't know about you, but do you think about the church as possessing joy? Having joy? Is church joyful to you? Is it your heart's desire to see the church progress? I see a lot of joyless churches. I see a lot of churches regressing and not progressing. Regressing is not an option for us, brothers and sisters. We must progress in the faith. And that only brings joy. How could it not? Look at verse 26. So that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Paul's convinced that he's going to stay on this earth for a while longer. All for the progress and joy of their faith. Paul wants their confidence and joy in Christ to go to grow, excuse me, because what because of what Christ is doing in Paul. So how does this happen? How do we get this joy? How do we maintain this joy? How do we progress in the faith? How do we have our confidence and joy in Christ grow? Look at verse 27 it tells us, "Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. A manner worthy of the gospel is one that is united. That is how we are to walk, united, worthy conduct, 
striving together for the faith of the gospel. This brings us to point number two. Point number one being that a mark of the the true church is the preaching of God's word. Point number two, the mark of a true church is their unity. Their unity. A mark of a true church is their unity, which is built around worthy conduct that Paul addresses here. We are to strive together in the faith of the gospel. Standing firm. Not alarmed by our opponents. We know we'll have them. Yes, we know that we'll suffer. Not alarmed. Because the fact that we even have opponents is the sign of their destruction and a sign of our salvation that we truly belong to Christ and truly know Christ. If you want more specifics, skip down to Philippians 2, verses 2 through 4. If you want to know what worthy conduct looks like, here it is. You ready? Paul says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Does that need an explanation? We, as the church, are to model these things, united in our purpose, how we think, humbly looking at every other person more important than our own self, not being selfish, but selfish, not proud and boastful, but gentle and gracious. This is how we are to be. This is the worthy conduct. This is how we get to unity. When we're of the same mind, when we are driven by serving others, when you become the least important person in your life because you are consumed with serving others, humbleness. Yes, was Christ not humble? Was Christ not selfless? In fact, if you skip down to verses 5 through Nine, Paul does give Christ as the ultimate example of this. Christ was humble. He was completely humble. Left his throne. Clothed himself in frail humanity. He was completely selfless. If Christ did this perfectly, how much more should we strive to model this. Has Christ, brothers and sisters, not done enough for you to motivate you to give up your wants and desires and to look out for the desires and needs of others? Is Christ? Incarnation, the very fact that he left his throne in heaven and came down to live the perfect life you and I could never live so he could pay the debt we never pay enough for you to get over your petty quarrels or to give up your wants and desires and seek out the interests of others, to walk humbly, to walk in unity, not holding any grudges. Is that not enough? 
Is God's love for you not motivating enough that you give up watching the sports game or time in your evening to call someone and see how you can serve them? Now hear me, I'm not knocking the Super Bowl. You get a pass for that. You can watch the Super Bowl. That's okay. Just not the stupid commercials or the halftime show. But when we stop thinking about ourselves and we are united in our purpose and in thought, thinking how we can serve others, serve the body of Christ, to walk in a worthy manner, to have a worthy conduct, and we live that out, the church becomes what the church is supposed to be. May I remind you that the Philippian church wasn't a perfect one. There's no such thing as a perfect church. But they were a true church and Paul that Paul loved and wanted to serve. Just a couple verses to bring to your mind. Remember what Paul says in chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy for my every prayer for you all. Paul loved them. He prayed for them. He had joy when he prayed for them. He refers to them as partakers of the gospel. Incredible. Paul writes to them in verse 6 saying, Listen, I am very confident that the work Christ started in you, he will complete. Chapter 1, verse 8. For God is my witness, how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. He loves them. He longs for them. And if you skip to chapter 4, Verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, here it is, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Cause the Philippian church his joy and his crown. Incredible. The Greek word for crown there actually refers to a wreath. One that would be given to athletes to place on their head after winning a game or a triumphant victory. This is incredible. Paul calls the Philippian church his crown, his wreath of victory. Because... The Philippian church's spiritual growth, their growth in Christ is proof that his work was not in vain, that his labor was fruitful. That's why he calls them his wreath of victory. They were proof that God's word will never turn void, but that God accomplishes his very purpose for which he intends it. Paul's labor was fruitful. His imprisonments, his beatings, his strivings and labors because of him proclaiming the gospel proved to be fruitful. He wasn't striving to please man. He wasn't striving to get the budget committee on board to get light shows and fog machines in the temple or a coffee bar or to incorporate over emotionalistic music and dance moves. He just preached the word of God, and left the results up to God. It was hard work. 
he was in prison half the time because of it. And during that time, many people left Paul. Many people betrayed him. Many people hated him. And the church suffered many hardships. But for those who God had chosen in eternity past to come to him, it was fruitful. And his labors were not in vain. It was all worth it. This is what we are to do. We preach the word of God. We proclaim Christ. We are to be unified in one body, looking out for others, not ourselves. This is what marks a true church. Church. When we hold these characteristics, when the word of God is preached and is the pinnacle of the ministry, when we are consumed with serving others, united together with the same purpose and goals, being that Christ is exalted above all else, Christ is able to grow his church and nothing can stop it. We don't need to resort to anything else to try and be successful. Hear me. Our success is not based on worldliness, is not based on how relevant we are or how many people we have in the pews, but our success is based on our obedience to God's word. The time is coming when we too may suffer as Paul did, as the Philippian church did. But may we be like the Philippian church and like Paul, who although they were imprisoned, although they were beat, although they suffered many hardships, they held fast to the word and they were united in the same goals, the gospel, preaching Christ. May we hold to these same truths and may they mark our church all to the glory and praise of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us and allowing us to meet here this morning to examine your word, to, to get to know who you are through your word. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for their striving to do what's right in their work and their faithfulness to the word. God, I pray that it would be fruitful, that we wouldn't stop, and when all the world turns to chaos, that we would just hold fast to you and do what we've always done. That is, preach your word. Hold to your word. May we cherish it in our hearts, and may your word have its full effect in our lives. All to the glory and praise of your name. Amen.